are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Before we begin with the podcast, the NBA would like to offer a sincere note of thanks to association member Bike Flights for their continued support of the NBA and retailers at large. Bikeflights.com is a bicycle shipping service and a supplier of bike shipping boxes offering low costs, excellent service, and on-time delivery. Since 2009, Bike Flights has made it easy for more than a million people, including individuals, bike shops, events, and cycling industry businesses, to ship bikes, wheels, and gear with confidence. They've been working to get more people on bikes, plus have been advocating for safer roads and more and better trails to ride, race, and explore. Bike Flights is a company that's committed to sustainability. Learn more at bikeflights.com. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, produced by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. This is Heather Mason, MBDA President. Specialty bicycle retailers are the heart of the cycling industry. And since 1946, the NBDA has existed to strengthen these businesses through education, research, communication, and advocacy. We truly believe when we create thriving bicycle retailers, the industry and the cycling community follows. The NBDA is a nonprofit supported by the membership of participating retailers and industry partners. If you're not already a member, you can learn more and join online at nbda.com. All right. Today's guest is Ryan Zagata, president at Brooklyn Bicycle Company. Brooklyn Bicycle Company is a bicycle company based in Brooklyn, New York, that was founded in 2011. Brooklyn Bicycle Company originated from the desire to provide people with bicycles to explore their neighborhoods and engage with their communities. The company itself, deeply immersed in its community, designs bikes to celebrate their own neighborhood, multicultural, economically diverse, topographically dynamic, and remarkably collaborative. Ryan and his team are on a mission to make purchasing a product a human experience, not just providing their customers with bicycles, but providing a series of positive experiences from the first interaction to new bike day. Working with retailers, Ryan and his team deliver on that promise day in and day out. CNN named Brooklyn Cruiser one of the coolest commutes on two wheels, and the bicycles have been showcased as fashionable options in publications such as Vogue in 2012. Listen in as we get to know Zagata, learn more about the company, the human interaction that lends to a positive experience, and explore all to come in the future of the bicycle industry. That's a lot. There's so much here. I know this conversation will be jam-packed. A great friend of mine. I'm super thrilled to welcome Ryan to Bicycle Retail Radio. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Heather. These are fun events to do. I know I've participated in a few roundtables. I've always enjoyed engaging with the retailers as well as yourself, and it's a really fun industry. And I think for me, it's kind of become my life's mission to let people know that there are fair suppliers out there in the world. You know, I think with all that's going on in the industry, probably in the past 90 or 120 days, we've had maybe 20 years worth of progress that's taken place and things are going in all different directions. But, you know, all suppliers are not bad, I think is a very important thing to understand. Ryan, you are awesome. Since my first introduction to you years back, you've been just a positive influence. And I love bringing 
people onto bicycle retail radio. So we can really expose like who they are within the role and get to know them a little bit more. And in this case, Brooklyn Bicycle Company. But I want to rewind and let our listeners know a little bit more about you. I mean, I think I know a lot, but I'm I think I might be missing some stuff too. So pre-2011, when Brooklyn Bicycle Company was founded, what were you doing and how did you get into this industry? Can you give us a glimpse of that? Yeah, for sure. It's I mean, it's it's certainly not a traditional route. I didn't come out of a bike shop. I didn't come out of the bike industry when I broke off. I grew up upstate New York and Syracuse. I, for people who are, I guess, here in the New York area, upstate, it could be Westchester, but I grew up in the real upstate or central New York up in Syracuse, studied at the University of Buffalo, and then had always wanted to move to a, a big city, moved to New York and worked in finance for a while. So I was actually trading municipal bonds, helping cities to get funded, build stadiums, student loan initiatives, just generating generating income for a lot of these municipalities and state agencies to help fund their initiatives and did that for a handful of years. And someone had approached me about selling software into the financial services industry. And at the time, you know, I kind of become disenchanted with Wall Street. I think economically, Wall Street was outstanding, but it wasn't something I wanted to look in the mirror 15 years down the road and say, geez, I'm I so proud of myself. This is, this is my body of work in my life. That's not to suggest that there aren't tremendous people doing tremendous things on Wall Street, just suggesting it wasn't for me. So when I started selling software back into the industry, leveraged a lot of my relationships I had made when I was on some of the trading desks, but just again, became disenchanted. The company that I had worked for had been acquired by multiple companies and ultimately stopped investing in research and development and just focused on you know, pure revenue generation. So we were doing incredibly well. And then all of a sudden we're losing transactions to these companies I had never heard of before. And that to me was a moment where I had to kind of look myself in the mirror because the way they were generating revenue was just auditing anyone that used their software. And anyways, that's a long and boring story. Fast forward a couple of years to 2007, 2008, my wife, Thea and I were looking for a home. We had lived in Manhattan at the time. The economics of buying a home in Manhattan did not suit us. It wouldn't work for us because we wanted to raise a family. So we started looking in, in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, you know, we kind of we found a home that we loved, but we kind of left Manhattan kicking and screaming. 2006, 2007, Brooklyn was cool, but it wasn't didn't have the uber cool factor that it had subsequently had bestowed upon it, I guess, by the world. It was a great move for us. And, you know, as much as we were kicking and screaming to move here within about a week of moving to Brooklyn, we looked at each other and we're like, this is, we hit the jackpot. Brooklyn is outstanding. It's a great community. We have everything we had in Manhattan culturally access to, you know, green spaces, but we had a little bit of solitude. Like we have a patio, we have a backyard, we have a much bigger home than we would have been able to afford. And in that moment, we kind of looked at each other and we wanted more. So we had a radius of the community, the radius of our community, which is a walking radius of maybe, you know, 18 blocks, 10, 12 blocks in any direction. We recognize that with a bicycle, the radius of our community could be substantially more. It could be a much bigger radius. So we could go further afield and find a better cocktail bar or a better cafe or a better, you know, little bookstore or art gallery or a public space. So to me, at this moment when I was struggling with, I guess, the ethics of the software industry, the company I was working for, I also had an epiphany that the bicycle 
was simultaneously expanding the radius of my community and making me feel so much more in love with with Brooklyn, this community that had embraced us when we moved here, you know, a handful of years earlier. And we wanted more of it. I wanted more of it. I wanted to go find a cool place to see a concert in the coolest restaurant and, and go taste testing pizzas all over Brooklyn. And the bicycle is that symbolized that kind of expansion of the radius of my community for me. I don't fancy myself. I do have a, a really amazing road bike and I love riding it, although I don't find a lot of time. Time, but cycling for me is not about clipping in. It's just about getting out there, getting from point A to point B, and just experiencing things that you wouldn't be able to experience if you're in a tunnel on a subway, reading your Kindle or thumbing through your iPhone, I guess is probably more common. Or if you're in a, in a car listening to a podcast, you know, you're not smelling the air, you're not seeing the things. You have to have a sense of awareness on a bicycle that you can kind of, I mean, in a car sometimes it's fascinating that I realized I just went 10 miles and I don't even remember driving. You mm. just kind of go into this autopilot mode. If you try that on a bicycle, you will probably end up with some scars to show for it. Wow, Ryan. So I love this story. I did not know this about it, but your move with your family to Brooklyn and Brooklyn's amazing. I love it there. And I've been there on a bike. Awesome. And so a bicycle brand is born based out of the fact of where a bicycle can take you and the experiences along the way. How did you begin? Like, <laughs> like. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess a shout out to Wayne Sosin at Worksman. Thea and I were in Vietnam at the time on a holiday and everyone in Ho Chi Minh City, formerly known as Saigon, was riding around on the backs of bicycles. And they're so utilitarian. People had stacks of wheat, you know, three feet off of a carrier in the back of their bike. And at that moment, I just literally looked at Thea and I said, I want to start a bike company. And that's the kind of bike I want. Before we had even come back, I had emailed Wayne at Worksman about ordering a couple of prototypes. And Wayne was super knowledgeable. I didn't know a thing about bikes. I didn't know a one-piece bottom bracket from a fender. You know, none of his the terminology didn't make sense to me. But I had ordered a couple of prototypes. Wayne put a couple of bikes together for me, and then I took those bikes and brought them to a few bike shops here in Brooklyn. And I said, "Hey, I, I want to start a bike brand, or I'm starting a bike brand." At that point, it wasn't a desire; it was happening. And I said, would you carry our bikes? And unequivocally, I got no's from everybody. I would never carry that bike. And I said, this bike is not my kid. It's not my pet. It's not my spouse. I don't care about the bike. I care about putting a good product out there that you can sell and that consumers will want and have desire for. So it's great that you said, no, actually, that's that's a win for me. But what I need or appreciate you doing is giving me feedback on how could I make this a bike that you would sell. And you know, you get all sorts of feedback you know the bike industry if people are not opinionated they, they are not in the bike industry but it's an opinionated bunch and, and I've grown to really love that but I got a lot of feedback some tremendous feedback and that became our first iteration we went back and adapted the bike made some changes at this point recognized that the economics of sourcing bikes domestically not just the economics but the feasibility and the volume that we had anticipated it didn't make sense so we started talking to factories in Taiwan and China and we got a few more prototypes and our first container of bikes landed. And I'm, I'm kind of expediting the story a little bit. And then I went back to most of those same shops and I said, here's a bike that you had a hand in helping us design. Will you stock this bike? And we got about a 50% hit rate. I think Joe Nacella at 718 Cyclery, who's seemingly really well known in the industry, really clever guy, good man, built a great business for himself. He was our first dealer here in New York. And then it's, you know, it's, it's just fighting and, and, and pushing to get in, getting floor space. And, you know, with only two models at the time, 
it was a struggle. But as we continue to, to build the brand and, and see what made sense for us and what made sense for our retailers and our customers, doors, doors naturally started opening for us. You referenced it earlier, but we were also a benefactor of a lot of really, really good press early on. So we had just demand generation. People were asking for our bikes by name because we were doing partnerships with the MoMA. We had a bike in the museums, Museum of Modern Art store. We were in the New York Times and Vanity Fair, and we got picked up on all these publications. And it really just kind of springboarded us. We were off and running. And at the time, I was working two different jobs. I was doing the bike company, but also still selling software. And I just, the bike company just grabbed me and said, you you are no longer going to be able to do both of these things. So I do somewhat sarcastically suggest that the my first investor, even though we've never had the investors, was the, the software company because they paid my salary for a short bit while I was starting the company. Here it is over a decade later. It must be just so to sit back and look at your hard work and your efforts. And you know, you have this idea and just push it forward as you did. For our listeners, I'd highly suggest you visit brooklynbicycleco.com. That's the website. And there is a tab, it's why Brooklyn. And it kind of goes into your core values, mentions rooted in place, fixation on quality prioritizing ethical relationships. I mean, I would say this is all kind of what you're just summarizing that it's been a collaborative effort, right, Ryan? Truly. I mean, I struggle to take any credit for what's happened. I mean, I was simply persevering and pushing through, but it's really kind of, I was fortunate enough to bring some tremendous people on along the way and fortunate that a few of them have stayed with us. You know, I have a a young woman down in, in Georgia who works for us, Danielle, and my vocabulary is like limited to describe what a profound experience it's been working with her and learning from her and just befriending her, but just watching the way she engages with our dealers. She has so much care and concern to make sure that we're doing right by everybody. And it's, I mean, that's, that's the business. That's, that is really what we do. And I'm hoping it's okay if I use a small curse word here, but really Heather, when it comes down to it, someone had asked me, why are you different? And I said, we're different because we give a shit. And the more I, I think about that, it's just like such a profound statement, but we so much give a shit about really three things, people, and that's just not the people that work for us, which are a big part of what we give a shit about, but also the people who give us five, six, $700 or $3,000 for a, for a pallet of bikes. I want you to have a good experience. I want you to be able to profit from that um, if you're a dealer, or I want you to be able to, you know, I want it to bring you joy if you're a customer. So very much about people and then our partners and that's our upstream and downstream partners. So our factories, you know, I would sit on the factory floor with the people and have lunch. If you go on our website, you can see a, a tour of the factory and you see me goofing around with the, the people on, on the factory line. These are human beings. They're, these bikes are made with human hands. It's no different than walking outside your house and patting the mailman on the shoulder saying, you know, thanks for doing this. These are human beings building our bicycles. I like to get to know the people who are taking a part in putting our products together, but then also our, our partners on the other side of the equation, our, our dealers who, and our assembly partners who are such a big part of, of our success and really providing this, what I would call delightful experience to our customers. And then lastly, we wouldn't be in business without the third P, which is product. You know, We really give a shit about the product and yes, there's the occasional hiccup, but by and large, we are in constant pursuit of excellence and putting the right bike out there at the right price point. Are there better bikes out there? Of course, of course there are. I mean, there's, I would never try to compete and be the best, 
bike out there because there's a higher price point where there's better products and better componentry. But I think for who we are, what we're doing, our place in the world, we take a lot of pride in, in the product that we put out there. So that's really what I talk about. And then the other part of that is the experience for our customers. We try to be transformational. I love to meet people and engage with them and understand why they're buying a bike and make sure they're getting on the right bike. You know, so much of life today is transactional. You walk into Starbucks and you hand them $4.50 or I, I don't know how much a coffee is at Starbucks and they hand you a cup of coffee and you're out and that's a transaction. Wouldn't it be amazing if they're like, hey, Heather, it's, it's so great to see you. I mean, how's your daughter doing? How's your son doing? Is, is he racing in that mountain bike race this weekend? That to me is a transformational experience where you're going in there, you're greeted by name. This person knows and has a recollection of something you've told him in the past you know, what about that Sprinter van you just bought? I don't know if the news is out yet, Heather, but you, I, heard you bought a, I heard you bought a Sprinter van. But uh, nonetheless, we aim to do transformational experiences as opposed to transactional. And it feels good for us. And at least the feedback we're getting is it also feels good for our customers. Yeah. Well, it feels good as a you know person, as the MBDA president to work with you. You know, the events you've done with me, you, you show up and the retailers on the call, it's like your friends, your buddies, you're, you know, truly collaborative. And that goes a long way and it's uh, very noticeable. So I want to learn more about Brooklyn Bicycle Company. I want to learn more about the products, the people, but let me just ask you a big question. The past two years, I mean, the industry has really been through traumatic time, lots of changes. What's some of the biggest things that, that have been, you know, noticeable to you or that you've been working through navigating the past two years? That's a... <laughs> It's a hell of a question, Heather. So first of all, thank you. I, I enjoy being on these podcasts. I do feel like I want to be pals with the dealers because we have the same goal at the end of the day of getting more people on bikes. But speaking specifically to the question that you just asked, I'm learning a lot. I feel like every day I'm learning a new way of doing something. Nothing is as easy and seamless and you build up all these processes. We've been in business over a decade. It'll be almost 12 years in, in early 23, it'll be 12 years. And you build up and you create these processes and these operations and you try to make everything smooth and seamless. And someone comes and knocks over your Lincoln log house and says, oh, it's not going to work that way anymore. So we're learning a lot and there's so much is changing. I mean, starting with 2018, you started having tariffs coming in, a lot of the manufacturing out of China. So we're looking to source out of Taiwan and different countries, but you know, we're not Trek giant specialized Cannondale of the world. We're a smaller manufacturer, you know, a lot of factories, perhaps now it would be different, but they, they, I wouldn't say they, would, they don't want our business, but our business isn't necessarily desirable when we're trying to order 15,000 bikes in a year as opposed to 300, 400,000 bikes in a year. So, you know, we have to kind of fight. So that's something that's certainly, I think, changed. Whereas, I mean, every factory would want to work with us previously. You know, now it's changed where they, they want bigger numbers. And then you, so you have the, the tariffs, which are, are kicking in and causing people to look for alternative options of shipping. For us specifically, kind of let the cat out of the bag here, but we've signed a couple of substantial distribution agreements. We have bikes going to Australia and we'll have bikes in the EU. There's a huge distribution agreement we've signed in 2023. And this is a first time we're publicly acknowledging that, but we'll have bikes in Europe in 2023 and just a, an outstanding partner we're going to be working with there. I, I become a dear friend of this gentleman and he's been in the industry a long time. He's going to do great things for us and we're going to do great things for him. And he's already having a tremendous impact. And then, you know, back to what else is changing is, is 
people. We, we've brought on a bigger team. So I'm learning to try to be a better leader in managing what was before three or four people. And now it's six, seven, eight people on the team. So we still operate lean and mean. I don't believe in, in vanity numbers and having a huge headcount to tell people we got a huge headcount. We want to continue to run a profitable business. And you know we bring on people as we need them, perhaps sometimes a little bit later than we need them. So much to my team's chagrin. And shipping. I mean, you can't pick up a newspaper without hearing stories about shipping. So looking for partners. We're just exploring working with doing some more work with Flexport, which is an online portal to help manage our shipments. They do a really tremendous job, but it's just looking for partners that can help us continue to do more with less and make sure that when we're investing in product, that most of that product goes to value creation, creating value for our customers. You know, I look at a, a bicycle Heather that we sell for $700 or $600 and so much of the money that we take has gone in the past more recently to areas that don't create value for a customer. So when we have to raise our price $150 because of a tariff and because of freight, I can't tell the customer that we put a better drivetrain on, they got nicer grips or better tires. We've, we've tried to work some of that in, but we haven't been able to add $150 in value. So a lot of what we're doing now is, is not so much of our revenue and then our cost of goods sold subsequent to that when we, we're buying a product is going to non-value creation activities. You know, where where do I consider value creation? I consider my factory tremendous value because they're assembling the bike and putting it together. Um, I think our retailers, our assembly partners, and our dealers are probably the highest value creation because they're the ones smiling at our customer, adjusting the seat for them, making sure the tire is true, adjusting the brakes and giving them a good experience, and also making sure that our phone's not ringing off the hook because somebody put the fork on backwards, which I've seen before. So there's just that those are value creations, but something like paying FedEx $85 to ship an oversized box, I don't consider that necessarily a tremendous value creation. Paying a shipping freight forwarder, you know, $50, $60 per bicycle to get it from our factory here. I don't consider that huge value creation. So there's oh, you know, and certainly duties, I don't necessarily consider that value creation. So there's a big part of our spend that's going to places that never in the past it went to that aren't necessarily putting a better product out there. So we're continually whiteboarding and mapping out and looking at alternative ways to make sure that if we're spending money, that it's going to be creating value and a better experience and a better product for our customers and our dealers. That's really what we're, we're spending a lot of our effort there now. Well, first, congratulations on the news of the increased distribution. That's fantastic to hear. Thank I heard you. it here first. And, you know, I asked you about the past couple of years, because I remember in a previous conversation you you and I had, was just about how you do have to be creative. So retailers have a lot of things coming at them that they're struggling with to keep their business open and profitable. But in the same token, suppliers as well are being creative and juggling. And it hasn't been an easy couple of years. But to come through on the flip side with a increased team and a increased distribution. I mean, it does take a lot of hard work and effort. Tell me about your headquarters. So does your team work remote or do you have an office in Brooklyn or what's that look like? Yeah. I mean, it changed about 45 days ago. We had a showroom in Brooklyn, specifically in the Greenpoint Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn. We had an amazing showroom with a bar cart and a little lounge. And it was a really, really fun place. But when COVID came, Immediately, we repurposed that showroom as a, a warehouse. I, I wasn't sure if our warehouse in California and, and Pennsylvania were going to shut down. So we stuffed a ton of bikes in there to make sure that we could at least 
whatever was in our control, we could control. And then as COVID went on and on, team members kind of just started moving out of the New York metro area. And ultimately, I am the only one still living in the New York metro area. So I had operated the showroom solo for a while. We still have the same team, but a lot of them operate remotely now. Danielle, who I referenced earlier, lives in Georgia. Brad Achatella, who's our, our COO and a longtime bike industry guy, does a tremendous job for us, lives up in Connecticut. And then we have uh, three, almost four team members down in, in Argentina. Yeah, just the, the economics of working with them make tremendous sense for us, but they're a fun bunch. They do great, great things for us. And the feedback from our retailers is that they're, they're really enjoyable to work with. And they just, they just have great heads on their shoulders. And so it helps us you know, make sure we're maintaining our profitability, but also staffing enough to, you know, address the needs of our, our, our customers. Ryan, before we keep going here for our listeners who maybe haven't heard of Brooklyn Bicycle Company, can you talk just briefly on the, on the products, on the bikes that you offer, kind of what market you're fulfilling there? Yeah. I mean, we're almost exclusively focused on urban mobility, getting people, you know, around cities, whether it's a casual ride to the, the farmer's market or the, you know, the little, food truck stands, parking lots, or, you know, riding to work. So, you know, we're not, we don't really have a lot of offerings that are going to be suitable for, you know, bombing up and down mountains in Idaho. But if you're in a major metropolitan area, and we, this is pretty much our, our bread and butter, beach towns, that's, that's really where we operate in. So as we look at our portfolio of products, I think we have about nine distinct models now, with I think two or three more in the works, thanks to, to kind of Brad's ingenuity. I think, you know, we, we very much think like what, do we need to do to get people from point A to point B, you know, both economically, safely, and, you know, there's just really thinking outside the box on how do we keep people safe? How do we keep the bikes safe and in someone's possession? And that's really a lot of what we're focused on, but it's really just in and around metropolitan areas. So we're not, no road bikes, no mountain bikes. There's enough brands building tremendous products in those different segments of the market that I don't want to compete. And I, quite frankly, I don't think we could compete. So we just focus on our niche and we try to do it as well as we can. Yeah. Such a cool product mix, uh, brooklynbicycleco.com. Have you heard of the Bicycle Retailer Excellence Awards? The NBDA's Bicycle Retailer Excellence Awards celebrates diversity and excellence in bicycle retail. With a focus on inclusivity, the program unites retailers, suppliers, industry organizations, advocates, and consumers in identifying and highlighting exceptional bicycle stores across North America. Recipients will be acknowledged and awarded not only for their excellence in retail, but their integrity, inclusiveness, spirit, and commitment to grow ridership. In 2021, over 300 retailers took part in the program. In 2022, one of them should be you. Visit the NBDA website to sign up now. There's no cost to participate in the program, and all retailers will benefit from completing the revised application featuring highly analytical questions related to the why of your business. Winners will be announced in July 2022, and an exciting awards program will be held live in person at the Big Gear Show in August. The Bicycle Retailer Excellence Awards is supported by Ascent 360. It has never been more important to make a personalized connection with your customers. Ascent 360 gives you a clear picture of every customer, allowing you to use your data to create targeted, automated marketing campaigns. Retailers across North America use the Ascent 360 platform to send segmented and data-driven emails and ad campaigns, including Facebook campaigns, text messages, and more. 
post-purchase streams, VIP lists, service reminders, and automated campaigns. Your best customer is the one that just shopped with you. Join leading retailers using the Ascent360 platform and make your data work for you. NBA members enjoy special savings. Find out more online at ascent360.com. That's A-S-C-E-N-T-360.com. All right, so let's talk about the way that you're working with retailers. I know that you have relationships with many retailers across the U.S., and I saw on the website there's two different types of retailers, stocking dealers and assembly partners. For our retailers that are listening, can you talk about those relationships and how that's structured? Yeah. So every one of our all the partners on our website are assembly partners, which means if someone purchases a bike online, we ship to an assembly partner or a stocking dealer. That bike gets professionally assembled there, and the customer goes there and picks the bike up. You know, at 11 years in, and we've never shipped a bike to somebody's house. So it's just part of it is is ethics that if if I, you know, work with a retailer and convince him or he brings in our product, I don't want him going home at night and seeing one of my boxes on his neighbor's porch because mm-hmm. that would mean I stole a sale from him. So in theory, you know, we we basically operate. I think we probably have close to a thousand, but I know there's about five to six hundred that we work with regularly. And then there are partners who are very much a big part of that value creation I mentioned earlier, where they're assembling the bikes, smiling at our customer, adjusting the seat for them. And then in return, the customer goes there and that local retailer, in addition to us compensating them for assembling the bike at their prevailing rate, they may buy a helmet there. They may buy a lock there. They may come there to get their first or second service done. So it's for us, it feels really good, number one, to know that we don't have to build up a support staff to help people assemble bikes over the phone or scan this QR code. You know, Heather, I don't know if enough retailers realize this, but the Achilles heel of online sales for bike industry, and especially e-bike companies know this better than anybody, is service. You know, and that is why I think retailers are and will continue to be such a critical component of that. Nobody wants to try to stuff a bike back into a box. I mean, I've been at it 11 years. I can't get a bike in a box. I can't do it. It's like Jenga and something gets scratched and the box isn't closed. So retailers are such a critical part of that in, in making sure that people are riding safely. The other component, the other partnership you mentioned earlier is our stocking dealers, which in addition to assembling bikes that we sell online and actually we flip the sale to them. So they are compensated at a higher rate than a, an assembly partner because they've committed to our brand. So we pay them almost as if they have sold it. There's a little bit of a holdback for credit card processing fees, which they would have incurred anyways in a little bit of a marketing budget. But by and large, we compensate them quite similarly to as if they had sold the bike themselves, but they also stock our bikes on their floor. So if you go to our store locator, you punch in your zip code and you punch in you know Santa Monica, you have Bike Shop Santa Monica, you can go there, test ride a bike there, purchase the bike from them. So it's just two different types of partnerships. They all fall under the assembly partner category, but then there's others that actually stock our bikes on their showroom floors. And, you know, I think of the top probably 50 metropolitan areas, I think we have almost all of them covered with at least one stocking dealer there. Brian, do you still get out and visit stores? And I know travel has been hard the past couple of years, but I yeah. love that part. <laughs> I know I, I see you all over the place, Heather. So good on you. I don't I don't know if we have quite the the marketing or travel budget that NBDA has, but we try to. I try to. Certainly here in, in New York, it's easy. I mean, I walk past one of our top dealers, Brendan, who's been a dear friend of mine at Silk Road Cycles, literally 
if I stood up, I could see his shop. I walk past his shop every day and I'll pop in once in a while, I'll drop off a six pack or something. Charlie at Bicycle Habitat is uh, Charlie McCorkle uh, is well known in the industry, but also become a very, very dear friend of mine. And just a, what a solid, solid fellow he is and, and such an advocate for the industry. And just, he shared so much knowledge with me and, and a lot of what we do as a brand is just, I, I'll sound, he's been a great sounding board for me and he's deterred us from doing things uh, in the past that we may have done. And it would have been ill, you know, it was something we were going to do and it's, it was ill-advised. And he's like, I don't know if that's the right choice. So the monthly or bi-monthly lunches that Charlie and I do are, are something I look forward to a lot. I had gotten down to Florida right before COVID. I haven't gotten out in probably 24 months. We do bikes. We do a lot of fleet bikes for New Belgium. So I was in Denver and I popped into uh, Z Cycles out there, had a good conversation with those guys. They, they stock our bikes in Denver. So I try to, but the short answer is not enough. And it's something you know I, I would love to do more of. Some of my best relationships are, are with our retailers, just really good, fun partners that we have in, in different cities. So yes, I, I look forward to hopefully doing more of that, but I don't do it nearly as enough as I would like to. I love to hear like the lunches and the, you know, learning the feedback from retailers, because I truly believe that that's what we need to do as an industry, like unite, learn from each other. So Ryan, it must be really really cool to you know walk down the streets and see your brand you know bike out there under a rider or just you know have lunch with Charlie and hear about the success that he's having selling your brand in his store it has to really feel good yeah i mean i think that's a lot of why we do what we do i think there's an element of selectiveness that we don't accept every dealer i don't want to sell a pallet of bikes to somebody without the intention of that becoming a long-term relationship. So I think, you know, we do try to make sure that the partners that we work with are ones where our brand will be successful. And then once we do take a new partner on, we want to make sure that the, the mix of models that they're taking are appropriate for, for where they are. So, you know, we feel very invested in the, in the success of our brands. I mean, we don't live for that first order. I always say we live for the reorder. We live for the second pallet, knowing that we did well by you, that our bikes are selling and they're turning on your floor. That's when it starts feeling good. Not the first pallet doesn't really, I mean, it, it's nice, but it's the second and third pallet where you really realize like we're contributing to this person's well being and we're helping them pay their rent and we're helping them hire a, a bigger team and, and, and live that dream of being a bicycle retailer. So, yeah, it, it does feel really good. And, you know, we, we miss the mark. I mean, there's some shops that we think we'll do well in. Unfortunately, we, we don't do well, but by and large, you know, if we are being true to ourselves and making and focusing on shops where I think we have a, a good chance to sell well, and that seems to play out accordingly. Yeah. Ryan, I want to, you know, not only learn about Brooklyn Bicycle Company, but I want to, you know, hear from you firsthand and give our listeners a little bit of your knowledge, you know, as you're working with consumers visiting your website or working with factories, working with retailers, just overarching, like right now, we have a lot of retailers who are thinking, should I cut back on my ordering right now? Should I keep stocking up? Do you have any indication? Is there anything, you know, that you're sensing about what we should expect as an industry for, let's just say, the rest of this year? Yeah. I mean, I guess from speaking to other leaders in the industry, I'm, I'm perhaps privy to information that maybe I shouldn't be privy to, but I mean, there are a lot of orders, massive orders being canceled off at factories. I know there's, you know, one of the, we'll call them the big four, but one of the large big four, I think one of their most popular models 
you couldn't get until I think maybe May or June of 2023. And then now that particular model is it's open to buy. You can go on the website and order it right now. So I think, you know, that's a big deal. I, I think when you think, oh, this is what I just saw on their website. I couldn't get it for 12 months. Now I can get it now. That needs to be an indication or a red flag that there's a good amount of supply in the industry right now. There's a term that I've never heard. I've been in this industry 11 years. And in the past six months, I started hearing it and I had never heard it before. And that term is called storage. I talked to a shop at the Jersey Shore today and he was telling me he has bikes at his employee's grandmother's garage and his mother-in-law's house and a storage container. He's got stuff over here. You know, the industry, when I came into the industry and for the past, you know, probably the first nine or 10 years, bikes were, were kind of available on an as-needed basis. You can go on a website, you didn't have it in stock. You can go on a B2B, place an order. And two days later, that bike's on the floor. The customer comes in and picks it up. COVID changed that. You know, we, we were being asked as a brand now to forecast for 2023 and 2024 without having completed 2021. Mm. It's a virtual impossibility. You're, you're really guessing. And I don't, I don't want to build a business. I'm guessing I like to build businesses on raw data mm-hmm. and look at the, you know, the, the trends and what's happening and kind of forecast that way. But we're being asked to forecast out 18 and 24 months. And it becomes very capital intensive because not only are you forecasting, you're putting deposits down. So you know, when you are getting shipped bikes and a dealer saying, oh, we're, we're dropping a bunch of bikes on you, you have to understand behind that, that particular supplier probably has an order for another, you know, million bikes with the factory. A lot of those million bike orders are, I don't want to say a lot, but those bigger orders are getting canceled off now because when they go back and, and they realize the forecasting that they've done is not accurate any longer. I think dealers are either running out of storage or realizing that they're going to accept bikes, enough bikes for two or three years, and and it's going to put them out of business. I mean, you don't want to be sending every check every week. You don't want to be sending a check to Wisconsin or out to California. You want that money staying locally to to pay for employees or maybe make a donation and build a trail. So I think there is going to be, if if we're probably experiencing already, but there's going to be a lot of supply in the market. And I think, you know, making sure you're engaged with a supplier partner, then it's going to be I don't know if compassion is the word, but understanding of your situation and wants to work with you as opposed to someone who's going to back up a truck and slide a bunch of bike offs and say, bikes off the back of the truck and say, you got to pay me for these. You order them or, you know, we're never going to do business with you again. Yeah. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, businesses and this is suppliers and retailers are going to look out for their own best interests. You, you have to. I mean, we want to be here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I can do that necessarily at the expense of a retailer. That's not our mantra. But you know, you very much have to make sure that you are in a place where you can survive and continue to thrive as as a retailer. If that's declining shipments or canceling off orders, I, I would say do that. Cancel off the orders because you know there are going to be bikes. There are bikes available now. It may not be the, from the prime supplier, but you know, kind of going back up to thirty thousand feet, I feel like the industry on the retailer side is becoming. You know, there's this element of haves and have-nots. You have these suppliers that are getting all the bikes and then some that they need. And then you have smaller boutique shops that can't commit to hundred thousand bikes from a, a bigger supplier. And they want to just order a pallet here and there so that their cash flow they can play, you know, match the, the cash flow with with the uh, the product as it comes in and, and they they own all their inventory. You know, they're not the, a lot of those smaller retailers are not getting access to the bigger brands. They're putting portfolios of you know best of breed bikes out there. And that's where we've really thrived. I mean, the pandemic has opened up a lot of shops for us simply because the, the shops that are 
you know, where we do really well, don't have access to the, the bigger brands because of the, they can't commit to big enough buy-in for them to really matter with some of these bigger brands. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been fascinating in that regard. But again, I, I just encourage at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the retailers do right by yourselves. Like you, you want to be here two or three years from now. Yes. Biking is a hobby, but it's also a business and you have team members and people in your community that are relying upon you. And I think if you want to be there to continue to service that need and service that, that niche, you have to make decisions that are in your best interest and, and not necessarily worry about the consequences or, you know, hypothetical consequences that a brand may push down on you. Yeah. There's so much, there's such great advice. We want to keep the doors open and keep serving our communities. If we just could unpack that a little bit, Ryan, you know, if a retailer does know or or realize that they're going to start need to cancel back orders and, and hearing that you've opened so many doors the past couple of years, any best tips or best practices that you would advise retailers on how to really be forthcoming and have a great relationship with their brands? Is there any, you know, is communication really at the core of it, Ryan? Like if they know they're going to get into a crunch where they're going to have to start canceling, should they call you up like ASAP and and be honest or, you know, just best practices, best tips for retailers looking to really great build great relationships with vendors? I mean, you, you must be looking at my notes, but you know that, I mean, assuming I'm going to make the assumption that you're not doing business with companies that you don't like or don't have a good line of communication with. So what I would suggest is absolutely get out ahead of it. As soon as you are foreseeing that you are not moving the bikes as quickly as you thought, you need to let the retailers know. Don't wait for them to call you and say, you got two pallets of bikes arriving tomorrow. You, you know, you know what you have on order. You can most dealers, you can go and see your open orders or, you know, whatever's coming your way. Don't wait. It's, it's not going to go away. That the problem is going to be there. And if you don't communicate and get out early enough, it's going to be a bigger problem. So just uh, let's take the scenario where, you know, model A, you have a bunch of model A's on your floor. You have more model A's on order with, with this brand. And you're realizing you're not going to sell through them before the next ones come in and you're, you're not going to be able to pay for them. If you don't wait and those bikes ship, the supplier is going to want to get paid for them one way or another. They're going to, you know, make sure they're getting paid for them. So if you wait and they get shipped, you're putting yourself in a a precarious situation. If you get out ahead of it, maybe there'll be a small penalty. Does that penalty matter? I mean, we, we do charge, if you did a preseason and you don't take bikes, we have a little bit of different approach that we do have a small, I don't call it a penalty. We call it a, a commitment that you've committed to us and we've economically made investments on your behalf. But what we do do is we will hold that. It's like a per bike. It's about $30 per bike. If you don't accept a pre-order bike, we will hold that as a credit on your account to use in the future. I don't want to do that. I don't want to take money from someone when we're not necessarily giving them anything, but we try to find the, the middle ground between where, hey, we've made a financial commitment to you based on this order that you place with us in good faith. We need to at least collect a little bit of that. Now we'll hold this for you. You have a certain amount of period of time to use this it's not going to go away. It's not a penalty that we're going to, you know, accept the earnings and book them right now. No, we'll hold this as a credit you can use in the future. But, you know, again, communicate, reach out in advance as soon as you know. And the other side, if you have a bike you've already received and you're not going to be able to pay for them, reach out, set up a payment plan. Mm-hmm. You're probably not alone. It's something that's going to be happening more frequently based on what I'm hearing about the amount of bikes in storage at a lot of these bigger shops. But reach out, get ahead of it, have a conversation with somebody. We're humans the same way you're humans. 
we have understandings and, and problems, the same problems that you have. So just, you know, make sure you're reaching out, getting ahead of it. And I can't promise, but I think you're going to have a better outcome than if you just pretend that it wasn't going to happen and, and thinking it's going to go away on its own. Yeah. Awesome advice. I want to flip over just, I'm sure you're looking at trends as far as consumers and their buying habits, you know, maybe expectations and service. Uh, There's been some chat this past year that, you know, people want to buy what they want to buy, when they want to buy it, how they want to buy it, making it easy for those purchases. Anything that you're noticing that might be some good advice to pass to retailers about consumer trends? Yeah. I mean, I I think you kind of hit the big one there is that you know, the, the ease of transaction, the ease of fulfillment. I don't think customers want to spend hours in a bike shop. I think they want to have all the knowledge that they want to have at their fingertips to be able to make a suitable decision. And then when they make that decision, their expectation is that they're going to have a seamless transaction. They're going to be riding that bike quickly, whether they ride it out of the store or it's two days or three days. But I think that's one big thing. Customers want and expect if they order a bike from us online, they want to be communicated every step of the way where their bike is. It, you know, the, we just open the top flap on the bike. I mean, I tell my team over communicate, give them more information and no one's ever going to complain if it's about a transaction. So they just want transparency. They want to know what's, what's going on with their bike. If there's something wrong, you're not going to be able to get the bike. I would be open about that and, and maybe offer them alternatives. But you know, what I'm seeing in the industry, you know, and I mean, I guess you can call it the Amazonification of things, but Amazon for all of the, the ill will they get thrown at them, they've created a tremendous ecosystem and, and they've really empowered the consumer and, and set expectations of the consumer where consumers can buy without remorse. They expect if they don't like something, they're going to hit a button and someone's going to knock on their, their bell, their door in 10 minutes and take it away from them. Um, or you just go to your local CVS and throw it into a locker. Um, they made it very easy for them. And while we don't have that capacity to fulfill or, or make it as easy as possible, we often engage internally in conversations about how do we make this easier and more transparent and more enjoyable for our customer. And I would say, even if you're a retailer, you can do the exact same thing. Is when we had the showroom downstairs here in Greenpoint, someone walked into the showroom, we had an incredibly high conversion rate because we weren't a ground floor retail operation. They would come up to the fourth floor uh, and like we're in an old loft building. It's a really cool space. And nine times out of 10, if they're making that, effort to come upstairs, they're, they already know what they want. But when someone walked in the door, I always looked at whether they buy a bike or not, it was a win. We're going to either learn something from this person on how we can make better products, or we're going to sell them a bike. Either way, we're winning. And so when they walked in the door, I would reach my hand out and just say, I'm Ryan. I didn't say, how can I help you? What brings you here today? I just introduced myself. And wherever that conversation went, it went. And you know, that's to me is kind of uh, speaks a little bit more to that transformational experience. And I, I think retailers who, you know, you, you have to keep in mind the experience that you can give somebody when you're in front of them. People can try to mimic it and echo it on a website. You can't, you can't do that. We're always trying to, how do we do more of what we're doing in our showroom where people are saying what a great experience they're having? How do we replicate that on our website? It's really challenging. You have an unfair advantage as a retailer. You need to make sure you're taking advantage of that. Don't let somebody walk in your showroom and wander around for 15 minutes without introducing yourself or acknowledging them. You have an unfair advantage. You have a a showroom and an experience and you can control the temperature and you can play the music to set that ambiance. I mean, you have an unfair advantage that, you know, as much as people say they're going to, those online stores, 
you know, you have an unfair advantage. They're physically in your store unless they're there killing time until their brunch reservation is ready. You know, they're probably most often there to transact. So give them an experience that they can be proud of. But you, you have to keep in mind, you have an unfair advantage. They're physically in your store. That is an, an advantage that a lot of online websites would, would they'd die for that experience. Why do you think a lot of these brands are opening up their own retail storefronts? Mm-hmm. They've got a lot of investment money and spent a lot of money on technology trying to replicate or mimic that experience. And it's challenging. And they realize the best way to do that is to have your own storefront and give the consumer the experience that they want. Yeah, it is. That's, I'm so, I can hear the passion in your voice. It's exciting to me because it's such an opportunity every time someone walks in the door. Keeping customers engaged, I'm sure this is something you've studied too, how we're reaching out to them, you know, continuing to help the cycling industry thrive. Any thoughts on that, Ryan, how we can continue to keep, you know, the customers who have found our sport over the past two years engaged with us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to think from their perspective. A lot of times I get emails all the time from bike shops, and oftentimes it's something that one of the bigger brands has created and they just push it along. And it's like, we're your local e-bike shop. You know, if I put my consumer hat on, that provides no value to me, that email. I know you're there. I know you can help me, but it provides no value. So I tell our team, like your email cadence, there should be no formal email cadence or communication cadence with customers. When you have something meaningful to share that will add value, send it. If it's three times a week, send it three times a week. If it's once every third month, send it once every third month, but don't waste an opportunity to communicate with your consumers by sending them nonsense. Send them something that will add value. So if that means you're organizing local rides, or if you have all your mountain bike customers and you just want to, you found a wicked cool trail, that will add value that you just found a really cool trail that's been cleaned up for the season. That will add value to that person, getting them to go out there and experience that bike. If you are aware of a road biking club or a free train, a training program, like these are things that I think will add value to your customers who already purchased a bike or purchased a helmet. You have to assume they're cyclists. Share things that will add value. Engage them, whether you're creating the ride or not, engage them in the community. Get them to do things and continue to ride and ride together. It's like when you say, you know, Heather, if you and I made a pact that we're going to go to the gym and get get really fit, you know, for the beach season, we will be more successful doing it together than if I try to do it on my own. You know, I might one morning not want to wake up and I'm like, shit, Heather's at the gym waiting for me. I need to go to the gym today. And, and vice versa. You may wake up one day. You just got back from traveling and you're like, I am so beat. I can't shit. Ryan is waiting for me at the gym. Do things together. Do things with other people. Number one, it makes the world a better place. I mean, I, I don't want to hang out in a, in a corner by myself. It's more fun with people, but also like you're engaging them. You're, you're drawing them in. You're giving them a reason to participate. So when you're communicating with them, I'll just say, make sure you're sending something of value. Do not send transactional emails, send transformational emails that will add value to somebody's life. Yes, that accountability. Now I'm like, okay, send Ryan a note. You know, are you up? Are you going out riding? And we can hold each other accountable. I could, I could use that motivation on the road bike, anyways. But yes, thank you. What about e-bikes? You know, the future of the industry. Thoughts on e-bikes and what we've seen. You know, this big boom, right? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of macroeconomic trends right now that that we're going to see e-bikes continue to thrive. You know, I think the early players in the e-bike industry. There's still a lot of them out there that were just throwing motors on bikes. There's a couple of brands that have raised a lot of money. And, and if you go to their website, it looks like a bike that they threw a motor on. 
I think you're going to start seeing brands now really look at ways to solve problems with why consumers aren't riding. You know, it is a form of transportation. I think you're going to see it used more as a form of transportation as opposed to like a recreational ride. So I think in that same vein, you have to think like, why are people, why aren't more people buying e-bikes or what would stop someone from buying an e-bike? And you have to brainstorm those reasons and, and solve those. Don't just throw a motor on a bike and think you're going to sell more of them and the, the revenue is higher and you have these great vanity numbers, your revenue is super high, you're selling tons of bikes, but you're not making any money. I don't think you want to be in a place where you're just throwing a motor on a bike. I think you want to solve problems, make somebody safer, you know, yeah. make somebody help somebody get somewhere, you know, maybe just solve problems is what I would say. So I think you're going to see more brands or brands that are going to be more relevant in the e-bike space are going to be brands that are looking at problems that are preventing people from riding or are deterrent to people riding and solving for those is what I would say. And your next question is like, are we getting involved? So I'm, I'm forecasting this next question and that, yes, we very much have an electric bike program, but I didn't want to be a brand that slapped a motor on the bike and said, Hey, we got an e-bike. This is fantastic. I want to solve problems. I want to address the concerns that 11 years in we've learned why people don't ride and make sure that if we're going to, when we release an e-bike that we are addressing those concerns and our bike is a, a reason why people want to ride, not a de, you know the deterrence we're addressing those. So that's a, a big part of of why it for us has taken a long time, and you know we're we're working on intellectual property and things that I think will will make a difference in in people's riding experience. All right, now here's my next question: Do you love what you do? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I I very very much love what I do. I mean, I. I I feel like I have a tremendous responsibility because we have a lot of customers who are handing us $600 of their money. And I don't take that lightly. $600 is not an insignificant amount of money or $700 or $800 or $4,000. And I, my passion is bicycles, but it's also very much business and, you know, fostering these relationships with these retailers and, you know, this is why I get up in the morning. Danielle, who works for us, I referenced her before, and I'll probably reference her in every phone call, but she often says like, she loves this job. She loves working for us. And she says, you know, this is something where I never dreamt I'd be in a, jo- a job where I get up in the morning and didn't dread going to the office. Now, granted her office is in the next bedroom over in her home. She moved down to Georgia, but nonetheless, I mean, I, I feel similarly, I very much enjoy it. I enjoy engaging and challenging ourselves and finding ways to continue to improve, improve our products, improve ourselves, improve the experience we're giving our, our consumers and our partners. And I do love what I do. It's it's fun. It's, it's become more for me about the business and the experience and, and doing right by all of our partners than it is about the bicycle. And that's why we brought Brad on. Brad's job is to continue to design amazing bikes that are going to last uh, you know, for decades. And now I'm focusing more on continuing to deliver great experiences for our customers, our employees, our uh, partners, and and everyone along our supply chain. I am just, every time I see your name on my caller ID, I'm thrilled to be your friend. It's truly been awesome to just have you along for the journey, you know, coming stepping into the role as MBDA president and prior. I'm really excited to watch Brooklyn Bicycle Company develop and, and what's to come for you. I want every one of our listeners to reach out and contact you and get to know you and the team closer. Might you share the best way to contact you? Yeah. I mean, first of all, Heather, those are big and incredibly generous words, and I don't want to 
not stop and pause and express some gratitude. I mean, as much as, you know, perhaps you feel like it's been a great relationship, it's mutual. I mean, I, I enjoy visiting with the retailers. I, we were on a round table maybe two weeks ago, and that was, I had so much fun being challenged by and listening to your, you know, the retail members of NBDA. So a lot of gratitude for, for you always being so generous with both your time and your knowledge and just putting the word out about our brand. But to answer your question, it's, you can just simply email me Ryan, R-Y-A-N at brooklynbicycleco.com. You can also call our 800 number. I'm more than happy to, we do answer the phone when we're in the office, every one of us. 800-631-0630. You are most welcome to call. And there's a chat on our website. You can send us a fan letter through the postal service. There's lots of ways to get in touch with us. And we accept all inbound communications, but email is probably the easiest. And again, it's just Ryan at brooklynbicycleco.com. You're awesome. Yeah. And for our listeners, we'll have the link to the website in the show notes. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on and spending the morning with me chatting and sharing about you and Brooklyn Bicycle Company with our listeners. I appreciate you so much. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. This is, uh, as I suggested, it's always enjoyable to visit with you guys. And for our listeners, thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. This podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry. We are dedicated to strengthening our retailers and cycling community. If this is your first episode, we urge you to take time and listen to past episodes. In the podcast, you will find relatable insight and a deeper dive into the heart of the bicycle industry. And finally, the best way to support the show is to subscribe, share your favorite episode with friends online, and you can go one step further and leave a review. It helps members of our industry find our podcast. Special thanks to NBDA Development Director Rochelle Scouten for the editing and promotional graphics with today's episode. Thank you for listening, and with this we go. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Oh,